Welcome to season two of Pod of Orcas. In the early days of the pandemic, we did a series about Southern resident killer whales, and now we're going to zoom out and look at the ecosystem and a lot of things that impact them and a lot of things that have an impact even far beyond that. Uh, to start the episodes last year, I had a little mini conversation with our board member, Kevin Campion. And this year, you, Kevin's going to be back, but we're going to be talking to a range of people within the CDOC Society universe. One of those people is Leanne Gilmer, who is our regional director. How are you doing, Leanne? I'm doing great, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? I'm doing very good. And I'm really excited to have you on. I can't wait to kind of have these like, do these intros and, and check in with people all over the CDOC Society greater family. Yeah. And I'm super excited about season two and this zoomed out approach, like you've talked about it, but also I think some congratulations are in order for season one. So I hear that season one of Pot of Orcas just got an award from the Council of Advancement and Support of Education. Yeah. Season one won the gold medal or gold award for in the case awards, which is, it's just really exciting. So if you're, if you're coming to this because of our guest today, you should go back and check out season one of this show. It's just seven episodes all about the plight and potential recovery of Southern resident killer whales. As far as ways to start this season, as to start one that's like moving beyond just the killer whales. And in this episode, we do talk about Southern resident killer whales, but we start on a note of like hope and optimism, which isn't always super easy to come by. And this actually starts with a book that you recommended to me and some of the others at CDOC Society. Tell us about this book that Ellen Kelsey, our guest today, wrote. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited about this book. And uh, originally it was recommended to me. I was having a conversation with the director of the Salish Sea Institute, Ginny Broadhurst, and she was talking about this book, Hope Matters by Ellen Kelsey, and saying that it was just such a refreshing perspective because, you know, we hear so much about climate doomism, really, where it's so, it's emotionally draining. And really, one of the things that I love that Ellen talks about is that, you know, that that sense of despair is actually disempowering. It makes you, it doesn't motivate you to make a difference, to be part of the change. And so when we start to frame things in this hopeful way, and not uh, in terms of wishful thinking, but in terms of evidence-based solutions and looking at, hey, there are some good stories that have happened and we are part of that. We are part of making a difference for a better world. And to think of hope as this way of thinking that it's not, again, just a feeling that you have, but it is an actionable, action-oriented uh, frame of reference and paradigm for how you go about your work and how we all go about our, our work to help heal the Salish Sea. So I had started to read it after Ginny had recommended it and talked about it with our science director, Joe, and he was just so stoked too. So he had texted me and just said, this is amazing. We need to make sure that people are reading this book. So we decided to make sure that everybody on the team, you know, had the opportunity to read this. So Justin, I think that that's sort of what, what uh, inspired this conversation, but then we didn't stop there. We decided to send this to our board of directors as well to just say like, Hey, we know this is something that we talk about at CDOC society. Science is a long game. You know, you have to really front load the science before you, and sometimes decades before yeah. you see the actual positive conservation outcomes, you have to have a hopeful perspective. You have to recognize that this is not a lost cause. This is something that we all really care about. This is something that we can do as a community, as a, a world of people. You're not going to do anything really with a whole lot of passion and gusto unless you think you can do a thing. 
you know? Absolutely. And so there is evidence we can do these things. And she covers that in the book. And there's also like good reason to reflect on the type of attitude you have around this stuff so that you do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that she talks about in the book is that the sense with the 24 hour news cycle these days, you know, we can't escape the language that's used to talk about the climate, to talk about conservation. And so when things are framed constantly as a crisis and in, in a way of despair, it really does take a toll on us, take a toll on us emotionally, take a toll on us in terms of how we think uh, the difference that we could make. I started to recognize those, uh, how often that is used or how often people will talk about scary things that are realities, but they won't necessarily come up with a solutions-oriented approach to that. And so you start to recognize how pervasive that is through all of the media that we consume. But then also you start to have that different lens to it where you're starting to look at what are some of the evidence-based hope that we have to look at, you know, some of the real conservation successes. And then also you recognize like, hey, I have some agency in how I interact with the the news that I'm being fed or that I'm consuming. And I really want to take a look at that and just say, hey, this is something that's exciting that we're all uh, part of making a really positive difference in. Totally, totally. Well, if you are like us and you have felt some of the effects of that kind of doom and gloom, bad news over time, I think you'll find plenty of reasons for to find hope in this conversation with Ellen. Ellen Kelsey is the author of the book, Hope Matters, Why Changing the Way We Think is Critical to Solving the Environmental Crisis, and a leading spokesperson, scholar, and educator in the area of evidence-based hope. Leanne, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Justin, for having me, and I'm super excited about this conversation. Ellen Kelsey, welcome to Pod of Orcas. Thanks for joining. Thanks very much, Justin. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you a question about hope in just a second. Uh, First, I'm going to read something back to you. To hope is not to wait around until you are feeling optimistic, but to join others in response to what we are doing to the planet. It is an action that you do rather than a feeling that you have. I want to hear from you about just the idea of hope, not as a feeling, but as an active thing. Hmm. And I think perhaps a perhaps a way I might jump into that is that one of the things I really love about hope is that there are so many different conceptions of hope and so many different definitions of hope. And it depends if you're coming from a philosophical standpoint or a psychological standpoint or a theological standpoint, you know, and I think even the context in which we're hoping um, has an impact on, on how we think about things. I think one of the most common ways people have thought about hope is in a behavioralist paradigm, actually. So there's all of this hope theory, you know, where if we can see an aspiration and we can sort of imagine ourselves enacting it, we feel empowered to do it, then we can achieve that hopefulness. Um, I'm not so much of a behaviorist, but I, I have in more recent years become really interested in this idea of hope as a political choice. Um, and I think especially right now in the last few months even, the whole concept of climate doomism and climate doomism as a, as a political device. So Michael Mann, the climate change scientist, talks about how um, it used to be climate denial that we were really concerned about, you know, because yeah. if you deny climate change or climate change denial, I should be clear about that. Um, clim- if you deny it, then you don't have to act. 
But if it's too late, um, you know, it's already passed, we're already doomed, you also don't have to act. And so I think there's been a real movement in social media, especially and amongst youth, especially, to recognize doomism as a political stance, and then to respond by thinking about evidence based hope and saying, I am committed to solutions in that kind of action, because I don't wish to be stuck in a paradigm of, of doomism or manipulated by a doomistic idea. Yeah. What's interesting about, about that is that, so you're talking about denialism, shifting from denialism to doomism. A lot of your book covers the fact that like the side that wants to save the planet and does believe in climate change also has doomism as, as, as a, a hurdle, I guess, like a giant hurdle. Is that like a calculated political thing you think, or just like a, okay, the evidence is too overwhelming at this point. Like how did, how did that pivot happen? Do you think? Yeah, it's so fascinating, isn't it? You know, we always try to reconstruct things. Um, so I, th- I think where I was coming from in the book is that if we look at the social construction of, of how we come to know about what's happening on the planet, almost all of us find out about the planet through the media. You know, the, that's how we learn about the environment. Of course, we have physical experiences in the environment, but our knowledge about what we think is happening comes from that. And almost all of the news that we hear is in a problem identification frame. And I think that was probably very well-intentioned in the sense that these are urgent and global issues. And so to focus on what's broken makes a lot of sense from that standpoint. But I think one of the outcomes of that, which I think was unintended, is that people have very little, they, they hear very little about solutions that are actually working already and having very significant impacts and are left with this sense um, it's Tony Lizowitz at Yale University who talks about this hope gap where we're in a position now where if you look at surveys from many countries all over the world, different socioeconomic levels, people are very aware of climate change and super concerned about it and they want to act, but they have this gap in a belief that there's anything, anything they can do about it. It's kind of like um, a, a powerlessness or a helplessness. So I think in the book, what I was trying to do is say, the feelings you have are real feelings, absolutely. And they are influenced by how we come to hear about things and what we believe as a result of what we hear and that sort of thing. And then to your second point, which is the sort of recent emergence of recognizing doomism as a political ploy. I don't know if that was calculated or not, or whether it's become advantageous, because it, it is true that if you think something is impossible, sadly, we see survey evidence that shows if you really believe uh, we're too late on climate change, even though you care a lot about it, you're very unlikely to engage in the kind of actions that are helpful to climate change. Yeah. Um, so it, it, we really do. And it makes sense to me. If I think something is really impossible, I usually do have a very hard time motivating myself to, to keep trying. I've, I've felt that in like, we work, we do our job here in the Salish Sea. And so like, it's not only one place with all its various challenges, it's one place within the wider big world with all of its big challenges. Pretty easy to start talking yourself into a corner of like, it feeling like a very, very high uphill battle. But you do an amazing job in this book of like talking about the idea of hope and then taking you to like, all these stories and all these news stories we consume would have you believe that like it's been just a tumble down a hill for decades. And now like we're just heading straight to hell, but the, 
and then you 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 it's super effective in the middle you start to give the examples of like the bikini atoll and like nuclear testing and then our own elwa river here and and everything that's happened there since the dam came down the dead river thames i think in in england and the monterey bay like i've i've read all those steinbeck books i i went to college in monterey and it's very interesting to think about the way the the picture that's painted versus what that place was when I was there in like the mid two thousands. And I've seen these pictures before of like, like Los Angeles covered in smog in like the sixties or seventies. And then what it looks like now and like population has grown uh, there. It was like very valuable to get these reminders of things that are, I mean, there are, there are so many successes to look at and then like direct things that you can point to about like where the pivot, the, the turning point happened. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's really it is that in fact, I've been thinking a lot about this during COVID that like today, if, if you and I were to log on to the economist website, we can see on a daily basis, what's happening globally with vaccination rates. And I look at it on a daily basis because it's actually changing, uh, you know, in real time. (laughs) And so to be able to look at that is to me very fascinating. And yet when it comes to climate change, we report back on one number, you know, one global number uh, when when we think about CO2 levels or whatever. And I think we really need to change the way that we communicate in that same sort of specificity, because where hope lies, just in the examples you were sharing, is is when you know what's actually happening today and and where we were a few weeks ago and where we've been and now where we're heading, it changes your whole perspective. So for example, I've been interested in ocean issues for a long time, and I know anyone listening to this is of course interested to the, the wonderful biodiversity of the Salish Sea, Um, It's really important to know there's a new UN um, large scale convention, a new convention being put forward with more than 100 countries signed on already around ocean health. That's almost at the level of a biodiversity convention or climate change convention. That shows incredible collective interest in the ocean. And to me, that's an exciting idea to know, because um, if you look at the research around what do these large UN conventions actually do? You can feel like they're slow bureaucratic institutions, but research evidence shows they actually have incredible, um, you know, success. And so then you say, "Oh, wow!" When something comes together like that, that's a reason for celebration. And that's and so knowing that changes how I feel about the state of people's concern around the ocean or action. And you know, we use the case of the ozone all the time as a beautiful example of diplomacy. You know, fifty years ago, we were so worried about the ozone hole. And now that's not an issue. And, uh, you know, and, uh, and it's not an issue by, you know, no reason. It's not an issue because of incredible international collaboration around a super complicated um, system of chemicals to eradicate those chemicals. And the same organization that led that movement with ozone is the organization now looking at refrigerants, the chemicals we have around air conditioning and things, which Project Drawdown, you know, which is a wonderful organization that looks at what are the main things we could do to ameliorate climate change problems. They put refrigerants right up in the top one, two or three things. So when I know that same body is working, has been working for five years already through the Kigali Accord, I think, okay, you know, like it's not that nothing is happening. It's that I don't know about it. And so that's what I'm really, really keen on. And because when you know that, if we had more specificity to how we show 
where are these things productively making positive impacts and how do we amplify them? That's a very different picture than one number that makes us feel hopeless. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm deeply thankful for people like you and our science director, Joe Gatos has like, I can be, I can be a little bit like uh, impatient. I don't know if it's the word, but like, oh yeah, there's a committee being formed to do this. That's going to work to do this. That's going to hopefully make this change. That's going to hopefully manifest in a healthier, this uh, 15 years from now, you gotta have some real commitment and vision and, and trust and um, that you're a lot of, there's a lot of examples in this book that really like drive home, like the, see this thing that a bunch of people did and, and worked really hard to make happen without immediate like gratification that helped result in this, you know, and, well, and again, you know, there's so many examples because they already did it. And I think that's part of it too. Our language around these things is, is often in this forwardness. So we say, if we do this, then this thing would happen. And I, I kind of call this a starting line fallacy. It implies that we all have to start the race now, but I'm really keen on what have people already done that is mm. producing the kinds of results we really need and how do we amplify that? And that feels like then you're part of a relay or something, you know, you have a much different, and I, you know, just in the last few months, there's been two things really stood out for me. One is tuna, which is the number one fish consumed all around the world. Tuna are notoriously hard from a conservation standpoint because they migrate across mass, you know, oceans. They have an incredibly complicated um, market supply chain. They're highly incentivized for, you know, they cost a million dollars a day or something to operate a tuna boat. So you really want to go out and fish. And yet three species of tuna just came off the endangered species list as a result of 20 years of hard work of, you know, fishers and policymakers and scientists all working collectively. So that's amazing. And then just two months ago, I think it was, we saw for the first time a global map of where whales migrate in the world like where are they in the world and that's the result of it's something like 50 uh 50 years of research something like that some huge number many decades um being collectively put you know this big data stuff now that we can see and that immediately changes things for the international maritime organization you know who are concerned about ship strikes and where are where yeah. so the specificity of that content opens up a very different conversation. And I know through my own work with marine protected areas, I was working, you know, I'm 60 years old. I was working on marine protected areas in my twenties. And at that time we used to think, you know, how could you choose any area? Because it's just one big thing of water, you know, yeah. that was kind of the idea. Well, now I know as a result of all of these incredible projects where animals themselves show us which areas matter to them most through tagging and that sort of thing, we've made really big headway. And in the last couple of years, the amount of marine protected areas, the space of marine protection has doubled, yeah. you know? And so content, it, it's not enough on its own, but it's it's extremely helpful also. And I think that's where I, I see these other changes that are happening, like our capacity to understand the complexity of the world um, really does make a difference to how we enact the kinds of solutions we know are the directions we wanna be going in. Amazing. Well, so while we're talking about those those kind of specific progress points and and improvements, I, I tell me I might have this wrong, but I kind of interpreted like as I read the book the idea of hope in two ways. Like there is reason for hope because look at all these specific things that are happening. Like look, this is hopeful. This is not. It is not all doom and gloom. There are a ton of examples of things that are legitimately on the page 
positive changes. But then I also see it as this other version that is kind of like having a hopeful attitude, being hopeful, being actively hopeful begets positive action, which begets more progress, which begets more hope, which like is like separating it from the things that there are actually things to be hopeful about. It's kind of like a, yeah, you're you're exactly right. You just said that better than I think I've ever said that. (laughs) That's exactly right. Exactly. I think I am. I I think both those things, you've really got it because what we know from the psychological literature is one of the main things people used to ask me when I would advocate on behalf of evidence-based hope. And I think the evidence-based ties to the first thing that you're talking about. I'm, I'm not talking about wishful thinking. I'm talking about hope that's rooted in actual things that we can look at and you could look at the same data and and we'd have the same conclusion around. Um, But people used to say, well, doesn't hopefulness create complacency? And we have these urgent issues. We don't want to make people complacent. But what the psychological literature shows us is actually hopelessness when we feel helpless or hopeless or, or discouraged or, um, you know, depressed about something we are much more likely to be apathetic, to feel like we are disempowered, like we simply don't have the means, the energy, the know-how to to change things. But when we feel hopeful, it's very interesting. Things like pride really inspires hopefulness or feeling part of a collective really inspires hopefulness. And then we feel, wow, you know what? I can stick with this really difficult thing Mm -hmm. and keep with it because I can see that that hopefulness begets a positive outcome. And so it really is true that both things are super tied together. Um, And so our campaigns, which have been a gloom and doom narrative, um, because of our concern and wanting to let people know there's a problem, when you already know there's a problem and someone just keeps telling you more about that problem and doesn't really tell you very much about what's happening with that problem, um, it really, doesn't work. Yeah. And we know that, you know, if you have a bad boss who really only ever points at what you don't do well, uh, it, it is not an empowering experience. And, and unfortunately, that doom and gloom narrative has been the, the universal way we've talked about environmental things, and it, it hasn't served us. This is like taking it and reducing it to a very like, I, I'm just going to share an example, a thing that was in, that kind of came into my head while I was reading this with some of the examples you were giving. And it's so my my grandpa grew up a Boston Red Sox fan and like the that baseball team is like they were the quote unquote rival to the Yankees, but the the doormat of it, a real, real doom and gloom kind of like it's always going to happen badly for us type type thing. And so they're in the playoffs playing the Yankees in 2004. They're down three games to zero in a series that's four games out of seven. So they're one game away from being done and they're in the ninth inning. They're down four to three They're So they're down by one run. As this guy, Dave Roberts, gets on first base. Real fast running guy, like steals a lot of bases. But the, the pitcher is Mariano Rivera, best closer, one of the best pitchers ever. It's a it's a doom and gloom organization with a doom and gloom fan base in, in the most sort of like you're doomed situation. And <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> yeah, I'm, tell, I'm telling you. My, so my, gra- my, grandpa, my grandpa bought like the little like documentary that you get after this. Oh, cool. That, that kind of recaps all of it. And so he showed it to me. And, yeah. and, uh, this whole there's there's this like kind of scene i've watched it on youtube many times where he's on first base a pinch runner dave roberts is going to come in for boston he can run him stealing second base doesn't change it necessarily you know that doesn't tie the game up that doesn't but but they're kind of like showing and they're like he's definitely stealing this base it's like it's not like whether he's not 
he he is like he's leading off. They're trying to pick him off at first base over and over again. Eventually, the pitch gets thrown and he goes. Roberts is going. Posada's throw. Roberts safe. Barely steals this base, and there's like a. They're still down three nothing in this series. They're still down four to three in that game. They still have never won a, a World Series since like 1908. But there's like a, like a an energy flip very clearly, and then now Miller will try to get him at least over to third base. Up the middle, Roberts will come to the plate. The throw by Williams. Bill Miller has tied it. This weird thing where that moment, it's like a shift in like every single person that was a part of like trying to not lose. It, it changed the way they felt about it. You know, I went yeah. long on that baseball yeah. analogy longer than I. No, no, I think you've got it. You've got it. Yeah. It's like a mindset shift. And, you know, we talk about there's a lot of interesting research at Stanford University in the mind body lab, for example, and how powerful our mindsets are um, and our belief systems. I do think these mindsets are really crucial. And I, I'm realizing as I'm, as I'm speaking to you that I, I really want to make the point too, that it's not that I'm saying that people have to stay hopeful and happy at every moment. I, we have a, a range of emotions about these issues and, and, and I think we need to welcome all of them. Pod of Orcas is created by the Sea Doc Society, a nonprofit based on Orcas Island in the Salish Sea. Our science-based conservation work is made possible by donors like you, and that includes the creation of this here podcast. If you'd like to support our work, you can go to seadocsociety.org slash donate and make a one-time or recurring monthly donation. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. There's a wonderful academic called Lisa Kretz who talks about welcoming outlaw emotions, you know, that we have more trouble talking about guilt or shame or those kind of things. And we need to say all the feelings that we're feeling and that hope is a very empowering, activating emotion. Uh, Despair is a deactivating emotion. Anger is a very activating emotion. And I think part of the reason that hopefulness and um, doomism are, are correlating now to really drive solutions is that people feel angry about being manipulated because yeah. that's a justice issue. And I, and if you look across something like 42% of people on earth are 25 years of age or younger and across that demographic, climate change and social justice are big, big values. In, you know, if you look at really all over the world, those two values keep coming mm-hmm. up. And so anger about the injustice of, of climate change in the first place, and then the manipulation of it through doomism is there. And then the hopefulness of, of, of solutions that are impacting are sort of driving us in this, in, to me, a very exciting time. So yeah. recognizing all of our emotions is also super important to this. And, and I would say that um, if you're feeling overwhelmed by these things, people often say to me, well, how do I convince this person? of this? Or what do I do with my cynical teen who doesn't believe any of this? And I, I always say, you know, the first thing I really believe is you have to create a safe space for them to share whatever they're feeling yeah, and really hear whatever they're feeling and just really be able to hold that space. 
and then try to, from within there, hear what it is more specifically that they are particularly concerned about, and then try to speak around some of the things you might know that are changing in that, or how might we look at that? Because when we look, then there's this rise of this thing called solutions journalism, which is uh, finding evidence, uh, just as much evidence rigor around solutions, challenging it in that way as we would around the problems itself. Finding what is going on around something from an evidence-based solutions orientation is very powerful to helping us shift um, how we're feeling, but first we have to really feel our feelings. Yeah, for sure. I, I know that I know that this idea of um, hope as an active thing to to work towards solutions wouldn't resonate with me if it was pure um, aloof, like ignoring the reality, uh-huh. ignore yeah. the reality, and just manifest yeah. a clean planet. That so yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. It, something that you were talking about the like young young people and their concerns and everything. Like I really looked back at, at some times I, I do communications for CDOC society. And I look mm. back at some times where I, I think I've typed, I know I've typed the sentence or said, or been around, been in groups of people presenting to young people saying like, this planet is in your hands. And like, I cringe thinking back on that now. Like, it's like, yeah, I hear this dying, this thing that's been being killed for like by the generation that preceded me and mine. Here you go. It's yours. It's yours now. Um, go fix it. It sounds absolutely awful. I'm sure your intention was good. Like, I'm sure what you were trying to say is I believe in you and you could do this. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that was your intention probably. I would hope it was, but, but you're right. The actual action of it is a terrible thing to do to somebody. You know, we, we, we wouldn't do these. I I just find it really fascinating that when there's another kind of tragedy, the thing we do as adults is, is first off, most often is gather young people around us and say, you know, here's how we're going to be safe. Here's how we're collectively looking into this. Here's what we are doing. But in this particular issue, we've done quite a different thing, which is kind of volley it off. And I, what I would say is important, I think, is, is we know there's research that shows for younger children, like six-year-olds or younger, what really matters to them is that they know that they are part of communities that care about the things they care about. So when you're acting in these ways, whether it's a beach cleanup or something, it's it's talking about, we're doing this. And actually look at all these other people in our community because they care about that too. And actually now Surfrider is recording the global impact of all of these beach cleanups and seeing that it's actually very significant, you know, so that, we move away from this idea of little actions that are tokenism to actually all of these things do add up to a lot. And there are now a number of UN programs and others that aggregate to show us how our individual actions are actually collectively impactful. So I think that matters. And then I think for young, younger people too, to talk about, it's okay to take a rest, you know, so self-care and allyship and communal care, which I, I've been looking at student guides around climate change Uh, produced by university students and high school students. And they are much more likely to talk about the emotional implications of of their concern around climate and how to look after themselves. And I think that's also really important and wonderful research that's coming out now on this global wellness project that shows when you do self-care, it's not only better for yourself, it's better for the organization you're in. And it's actually better for the cause that you're interested in because you're much more effective when you are looking after yourself and others. So that's big. And then I think the other thing is talking about humans are super important 
we talk about the age of the Anthropocene because we have such a big global impact. And yet there are 8.7 million other species who are also resilient and also active. And so that's another way of stepping outside and taking a breath and, and knowing all the algae in the ocean that's making that breath possible. It's not all sitting on that child to, to fix the world. You know, that is really not the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. That that's beautiful. You've actually, this, this month, you've been working closely with young kids, young students, right? What have you been up to? Oh, it's been wonderful. So I've been at South Park Elementary School, which is in uh, Victoria. And we were doing a stories of hope on the edge of the Salish Sea project. And so what we did was we, we looked at the fact that humpback whales, you know, about 20 years ago, there were something like 132 in the Salish Sea, and that population now is over 1600. And so we were celebrating the you know, the repopulation of, of humpbacks coming back to the Salish Sea, you know, so they're having their calves in Mexico and Hawaii. The first calf of the year just came back two weeks ago. Um, and so we're writing about nonfiction writing that's evidence-based, but our emotions. So how do we feel about those things? So we wrote down by the seashore. I worked with every class, uh, four sessions with every class in the school kindergartners through grade fives and then we wrote in forests so we interviewed trees to um, think about resilience in other species and how communities of trees help each other to be resilient and then we wrote in the city with chalk to tell the city of Victoria what's going on around the Salish Sea and then we ended up making these wonderful whales um, folded origami paper whales into a huge art installation um, on the windows of the library in the school to try and get across this idea that, yes, there are all these concerning things happening in the Salish Sea, absolutely. And we need to celebrate these moments of resilience, these incredible things, because, you know, I think it's the World Economic Forum now puts the price tag on a on an individual whale at a million dollars in terms of uh, whales as a carbon capture. Because as wow. they move water to the surface, they bring phytoplankton up that's capturing carbon. Um, you know, so uh, it was wonderful to work with the young students. I found that kind of stuff super compelling where it's like you hear these stories about uh, whales, like whales, like species that were severely endangered coming back. And it's like that story alone is like, oh, cool. But then you place it within the context of what that's doing for the planet. And it's that's like starts to give you some inertia and momentum and stuff. You know, it's. Yeah, exactly. that sounds like a, that sounds like a super cool um, project for those for those students. So how old were they, and what's your sense of like their feelings about this kind of stuff? What's your yeah? Name? So the youngest were kindergartners, and the oldest were in grade five. So um, I know you know those ages <laughs> well. Yeah. So you know we've had all the way from four years old up to like eleven or or, or eleven or twelve. And what was wonderful was um, those students really love to write. And, and, and we can write in so many ways. So we can, we can write in storytelling orally with each other, you know, with the younger ones. Or, and we were doing self-portraits with found materials from the Salish Sea because we were talking about our interconnections, you know, that, that we are, all of us are made from stardust, right? We're, we're these bits and pieces of, of exploded stars. And that's true of the whales. It's true of the plankton. So we were sort of celebrating our interconnections celebrating our capacity for resilience and celebrating what is happening in this amazing sea. And so it was, it was wonderful. And I would say it opened up all kinds of good conversations that some children would talk about how amazed or excited they were at, at a population recovering. Other children would say, um, I'm sad um, that it ever was smaller, or I'm worried that it might go down again, or, you know, all of these very 
very important feelings around this. And I was telling them, it's kind of interesting, giant pandas, which many children recognize as a symbol of endangered species, are no longer endangered. And so we we're talking about, oh, what happens when that moves? And one of the things panda scientists have been advocating is that rather these than these categories of endangered, you know, threatened, vulnerable, those kind of fixed categories, we might see it more like um, think of resilience more like we would a, a health issue. So maybe we're in remission or, you know, or, oh, now we notice something that's a little concerning. So we need to, you know, put more effort into it at this moment. So more of a health model rather than a fixed category. And children were really interested in that. Very cool. Like how we diagnose the problem and then how do we um, see solutions as not, uh, you know, everything's all better, but instead, hey, we've made great progress here. And how do we keep it going in that good direction? Excellent. Um, as you as you bring up the panda example, um, while we're talking about iconic black and white cool species, um, <laughs> you you live here in the Salish Sea, right? You live in British Columbia. I do. I spend some time here and some time in Pacific Grove in California. Very cool. on the Monterey Bay. That's a place close to my heart too. Um, mm-hmm. Sounds like so do the southern resident killer whales, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. There are about 70 Southern resident killer whales. How, when you have that conversation, this is one that's not on the, I guess maybe it's hovered around there for a little while. Part of me, like I've been getting introspective about this, like is Mm -hmm. saying there are only 74 of these animals left um, act now. I'm trying to take this idea of being hopeful and framing things in a hopeful way and, and apply it to that. I mean, we're, we're doing work here and, and a lot of it has to do with, that's amazing species. And I don't know, what are your conversations about Southern resident killer whales? How do you speak about them? In episode two, Ellen and I will talk about Southern resident killer whales, polarization, and the question of individual action on climate change versus holding large corporations and governments accountable. And also, of course, a whole lot more about hope. Make sure you are subscribed to Pod of Orcas and watch for that in your feed in the coming weeks. And also maybe take this chance to tell a friend about it, especially if you've got one who could use a little hope right about now. Mm